Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 14. Upon the squadron's arrival, Cintronea immediately shuttled over. Stepping out of the airlock in the factory, her eyes were round with worry, and she held me in a long, fairly desperate hug. Then she stepped back, muttering, You look like something of this factory's reject pile, space air. I've missed you too, I replied. Then we headed toward the cafeteria while I gave her the highlights. I do not know this Lady Tressal, she said as we walked, but I know her type. You were right to call for help. You have done research on her? Some, but I'm sure there's a lot more to know, and I may have personally caused her some grief in the past. My niece looked at me quizzically. Don't ask, it was one of those jobs. If she doesn't know about it yet, she soon will. What will she learn? I shook my head in frustration, because this part was entirely unclear. It depends on the kind of connections she still has over in corporate space. And if she's got any in United Humanity, well, that could be bad, too. The negotiation service? I nodded, but added nothing. You have a gift for annoying important people, Spacer. I know it seems effortless, but it's really a lot of work. Of course, she already knows about my relationship with your family. Yours too, she interrupted, reddening eyes flashing. You're my Hanunclo. Say our family or I will be angry. I could say you're the smartest, prettiest, most talented person in the galaxy and you'd still be angry. Slender. You're the smartest. Shut up. That made me laugh. I grabbed her around the shoulders as we walked while she badly suppressed a smile. What remained of the patriarchal line of the Kajit family and its supporters sat in the cold, stark cafeteria space of the only section meant for people within Naedoi Industries' Spendero Pondi class automated multifunction mining and manufacturing facility number 7 in Domina Gentium star system. Cafeteria was the wrong word, maybe, despite its proximity to a well-stocked galliette and bank of vending machines. Really, this seemed like a waiting room, crossed with a modest conference hall, crossed with, oh, I don't know, an automat diner? The cogits were settled into a far corner, the widow swathed in dark robes with a sheer, diaphanous purple-and-silver scarf-like thing laid over. I assumed it was morning clothes. The children were in white. They were quiet, with the youngest, a little girl with chubby cheeks, sound asleep in her mother's lap. The older boy was nearly so, sitting at their side. The Hadia and the shieldmen were at a table nearby, looking defeated and tired. 
Upon entering the room, whatever it was called, Sindra paid her respects to the grieving family. She didn't want to wake the kids, so it was little more than a nod on both sides to my whispered introductions, Sindranea's new bangs bobbing in the crisp, stale air, Kamatosa Kajit, nearly invisible in her dark clothes, returning the same. Shieldman Avil stood and said something quietly and briefly in Seishan, which sounded of gratitude. Hadia Duzentabel simply stood and bowed. Under other circumstances, sparse introductions like these would have been seen as dreadful breaches of etiquette on both sides. Here they were all anyone could manage. The Vernet's approach was one of open respect to one's peers. Modern, as opposed to genteel, courtesy and solicitousness were painted upon the exterior of all interactions. For those of higher rank, you attempted to provide the sort of respect they wanted or demanded. It wasn't always easy or convenient, but you tried. With people of lesser ranks who knew their place, it was all friendly condescension. One expressed acknowledgment of and appreciation for the hard work of one's inferiors. That was the visible face of the Vernays. The waters below this could be very dark indeed. Or not, but you never, ever showed the true nature of the thing to outsiders, no matter their rank. Of course, this style was a reflection of Elmond's. Not all branches of the family saw things this way. Sindra's mother, for instance, was very much a product of her upbringing, which seemed to have taken place in the Middle Ages on Old Terra. She expected and invariably got deference to rank, and assumed that privilege and wealth were the unassailable and inherent rights of her class. Underlings should, really must, always be reminded that they were such, and could never be anything more. How else did one maintain the proper order of the universe? I myself met her only once, this at a holiday gathering which Sindra had strong-armed me into attending. I was hustled across the length of a stadium-sized lounge to stand before an older version of herself, a short lady, approximately my own age, with impressive makeup and stylish clothing. Umberta Vernays, nay Mammut. She had the same scowl, the same round features. But where my niece's crusty exterior barely protected a deeply vulnerable heart, Umberta seemed like all crust, protecting nothing. Brown eyes like stream-worn pebbles, glistening, smooth, but hard, just hard. She spoke in a choppy, vaguely annoyed tone of voice, exclusively in Seishan. I didn't understand most of what passed between them, my retinal rig at the time being without the lingo of the noble classes as a translation option. The name of Barlow came up, that I did catch. Then her mother looked me over in a measuring sort of way, noting my flight suit and unkempt grooming. She muttered a few words that could have been a phrase of gratitude before moving on to someone who actually mattered across the room. Sindra watched her go, face screwed up with emotion. Rage or sadness or something more, I don't know, but when I asked her what was up, she snapped at me over nothing and fled the room.
I had assumed for a long time that Umberta was the commissioner's ex-wife, but actually, among a certain class, marriage was less personal than it was political and fiscal in nature. You generally wed for life, but that life was otherwise yours to enjoy. From a few things the man said in passing during the brief time I'd known him, he gave me the impression that he loved her, or at least loved the idea of having a family with her, and that she didn't share those feelings. Later, I heard about a traditional wedding and honeymoon seemingly designed to wither all the potential romance in a union. Umberta and her much older husband thereafter only saw each other occasionally at a few important functions. Even Sindrinea's conception had been in vitro, the major ingredients of which were collected with clinical precision and combined in a medical center far from either party. After this, a selection of frozen, fertilized eggs were shipped to Umberta's doctor, and she was implanted. The pregnancy and birth that followed were entirely normal, this too being the law as genetic manipulation of elite bloodlines was strictly controlled. As I heard it, a sort of informal joint custody of the resulting child was arranged, wherein she spent half her time with her mother and half with her father. Sindra and her mom didn't seem to get along, though, especially as the girl got older, with more time spent bickering than in anything else. When she was twelve, she decided to live with her father full-time, and the fact that her mother agreed with nary a caveat may have been the final nail in the coffin of their relationship. Later yet, after Barlow, Elmond became the de facto patriarch of the family, and Sindra was invited to live at his palatial estate in a suite all her own. Umberta rolled up to play the concerned parent then, for a week or two, then returned to her own busy life. A perfect product of her environment and breeding, the woman was dichotomously fundamental to her daughter, while yet being entirely without value. In the waiting room cafeteria place, I made those brief introductions, then got a powdered coffee for myself that was just exactly as bitter, yet somehow tasteless, as I'd long come to expect and rely upon. Sindra got some tea from the machine, then found us a table where we could sit and chat. We only ever hear from you when you need something, Spacer. Oh, come on, that's not even close to true. Well, it feels true, which is all that matters. The galaxy should be grateful you never went into politics, Sindra. She pursed her lips in confusion and irritation, muttering, Tatliotoka, in low speak, which my rig had trouble translating. It was probably slang, probably offensive, and I probably didn't want to know. Everyone here, that is, the techs and officers of the ships, were gabbling quietly in a mix of low speak and seishan, with ingtech tossed in now and then for garnish. My incident report and post-conflict assessment had both been translated and logged, ready for dissemination at the first civilized star system we went to next. 
Those were legal documents required by the International Route Management Authority, Imperial Law, and the local regs of the Marquis de such-and-such in whose actual section of space we now found ourselves. I wasn't too sure about the reporting requirements back in Amico Tenda system where our little near-miss had occurred, but with the RMA and Imperial regs covered, the rest was just formality. If I lived over here, I put in, hoping to mollify the young woman, this sort of thing would happen much more often. I'd wear out my welcome. <laughs> and who says you haven't already? She sniffed, looking at me from under heavy, dark brows, but with an edge of fear. I say young woman, but Sindra was actually 26 by this point. She'd had ups and downs in the previous few years, and I'd been around for some of them. Issues with rival families, a medical scare that had me tearing across the breadth of settled space to be at her side, only to learn, thankfully, that it was nothing serious. And a Vernet's event she was running that had become an organizational nightmare due to outside issues. I came back for that, just to hang decorative lights and balloons in a huge function hall, while she ran around snapping and apologizing for snapping at everyone but me. She took my presence for granted, because she could. Because if she needed me, I'd always come. Ridiculous wanderings and no-account temp jobs notwithstanding. She gave other people courtesy. Courtesy was easy and cheap and very vernays. I got need which was a rare gift, unique as it turned out. Eight years on, and Barlow still haunted her, as it did me. Oh, not every day, nor even every quarter. Recent events were an exception. But it was in us both, and never very far. I could see it behind her eyes, and she mine. The message I sent out by courier drone upon arriving in Domina Gentium had been to Elmond, her elder cousin, patriarch of Famia Vernese. He, in turn, dispatched a squadron of warships to act as escort. No questions asked, a member of the family was in trouble. We'd hash out the right and wrong of things later. Most of the family and advisors would have been appalled at the thought of her going along on a rescue mission like this, being the former first daughter of Famia Vernese, former because Elmond had a red-haired eight-year-old of his own, with a cherub smile and crystal laugh, who now technically held that title. This elf lived with her mother, his wife, on some other world, which pretty much said everything there was to know about their relationships. The mission would not have been broadcast to the gossips and laity of the household, though, and anyway, Elmond was a sharp guy who knew his little cousin better than most. It was not the sort of thing he'd deny. In fact, he never denied her anything, as far as I knew, possibly because, as the years now creeped on and away from her time in the Choral Prime star system, she wanted fewer and fewer things out of life. Her marriage plans had fallen apart due to noble intrigue and her career in the family businesses, first as an event planner, later as a family ambassador, had both proved unfulfilling. In other words, Elmond, 
leader of this house of growing renown, understood that what Barlow hadn't done with bullets and fire, time was doing by centimeters. Even I could see it. She'd been a devout follower of fashion once. She'd appreciated makeup a little too much and traveled for fun. These days she tended toward plain pantsuits and the like, and her makeup was reserved for only those few special occasions that carried with them some expectation of effort. Since I'd seen her last, my niece had cut her brown locks short, leaving spiky bangs over the upper half of her face. It was less trouble, she said, which seemed to matter now more than it used to. After the squad's arrival, there was a wait on the finalization of our escort plans. Josefina, being capable of only 12 light-years per jump, which was pretty darn good for a civvy freighter, would need to stop halfway in order to make the 22-light-year trip to Hefa system. The military types, however, wanted to do it all in one go for security's sake. There were some complicated jump-field overlap techniques used to transport vessels that had no or inadequate star-jump capabilities. This was fairly common practice, especially in the military, but things did occasionally go wrong. Captain Diempia was meeting with them at the moment over on the squadron's command vessel to see if it was actually worth the trouble and risk. Is Elmon pissed off? Sindra looked quizzical, which made me confused at her confusion. Over what? she asked. All this. How is anything here your fault? Stop being stupid. I'm dragging the Vernay's family. Your family! she interrupted sharply, which made me lose my train of thought. Across the room, others looked up briefly, then ignored it in a very practiced manner. I didn't reply, so she said it again, adding, Always I must remind you. He could just as soon cut me loose for being too much trouble. It does not work that way, Spacer. Is this how things are over in the Alliance? No loyalty? Well, my own family experience might be atypical. You are typically exasperating, but still you have a home here. One you keep leaving... Not now, please! I said it with more emphasis than I meant to, once again drawing eyes, just a quick up and down. I lowered my voice and continued. Elmond will have to make a choice, stand by this decision and me, or disown his familian Kano to save the family from conflict. We are in a squabble, Spacer, nothing more. They happen all the time. This count is insulted by that one. This knight is squeezed by debts to another family and refuses to pay. This marquis makes a fool of himself in public and blames another. Nothing could be more common in the empire. Not this time, I replied, seeing that beautiful lady again in my arms as we danced and hearing the beat. One, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, while we saw and ignored all the important people in the room, save ourselves. I met Piani Trasal. This is no fit of pique. It was a calculated move, or started out as one. Now I'm forcing some improvisation. Her plan was partially successful, but that wasn't good enough, so she tried again and then again. 
No one I've spoken to has heard of any bad blood between these two families before now, so it's not about hate, it's about ambition, money and power. The young woman smirked at that. Then it is about hate, because such people hate to lose. Everyone does. It is not the same, Sindra laughed bitterly. This is what makes them successful, and what makes them crazy when they are not. I say again, I have seen her type before. I let that go by with a nod, because now that it was reiterated, so had I. Some people had justifications for any action ready at hand, or could make them up on the spot without ever considering themselves frauds. You were kind because it looked good, or it made you feel good, or it got you something else that was wanted. You were cruel or ruthless for the same reasons. Loyalty existed to obtain allies needed for your own ambitions. Likewise, betrayal. It was a topsy-turvy world where morality was in total service to the self. My very point of view contradicted hers, and that had been my mistake. One that would get me killed if I kept stumbling along. Lady Tressal hadn't anticipated someone inserting themselves into her operation, and it was unlikely she'd ever understand why. At the moment, she perhaps assumed I was after money, power, or influence. It was a mistake, though, to assume she defined the motives of others through a filter another person could understand. Everyone was of a type. She'd find out mine, then move accordingly. Spacer, why did you do this thing? Sindra asked it in an offhand manner while sipping her tea, purposely intruding on the snarled web of my thoughts. She was good for that. Countess Kajit could use an ally. As witness to her husband's assassination, so could I. Lady Tressal would come for me eventually. You pursued the conflict. Otherwise it would not have been worth the trouble to her. She strikes me as the thorough type. She strikes me as intelligent. Killing a fellow noble who is not in her way would only bring trouble she does not need. You know this, but you choose to obstruct her anyway. It's self-preservation syndrome, I'm telling you. Then you lie to yourself. I am by your side, as always. But you will not win this thing without knowing why you do it. Her worming words got past my glibness and self-deceit. She was good for that, too. I'd never had kids, never wanted them. As a male-gendered familiancano, the honorific do-me by Sindranea Aniana Blaxiel Mammut Vernes was Hananklo, or uncle. Spacer was more familiar, a nickname that made us both comfortable, but she used the proper term when it was needed. This was correct, both in form and spirit, for in my heart she was indeed like a niece, my fractious, sad, intelligent Syndra. I'd made a promise to her late father. I had kept it and would continue to. A person could have ambitions... They could have designs upon someone's fortune, their position, their title. They could lust after an empire, 
for I'd seen a dark sparkle in Piani's beautiful eyes, even while tripping over my feet on the dance floor. All this, and even villainy in its tireless pursuit, were allowed. I would allow it. There was evil in the universe, and you simply couldn't save everyone. Yet, not everything was about salvation. In a way, Piani was asking a question of life, about her place in it. I was the one who heard, and that question needed answering. People like her didn't have to win. It wasn't a law of physics. It was a choice others made, to stop them or not. If success was the linchpin of their sanity, as Sindra implied, then it was there that you had to hurt them. Lady Piani Trissal, who'd made for such a beautiful, charming, brilliant dance partner, was going to lose. And this family, both these families, were going to be safe from her. Sitting quietly, thinking about it like that, there was nothing else on my list. More people were going to die. I felt guilty in advance, but it didn't change my mind. I had been staring at Sindra, seeing my own thoughts, and she noticed the bitter mirth that must have spread like a stain across my face. You are about to do something very stupid, aren't you, Spacer? <laughs> Who, me? I asked with a giggle, then kissed her forehead, which only made her frown. In the end, after a great deal of deliberation, it was decided to abandon the idea of bringing Josefina with us to Duenda. It was not needed and actually had a schedule to try and salvage. Once the decision was made, the ship left us within the hour, Captain Diempia satisfied that his charges had gotten a safe handoff. I believe he and his crew were exceedingly relieved, actually. Sindra made a note to provide Josefina with a bonus for services rendered, which she could submit to the family's wholly-owned subsidiary company that actually held the title to the ship. The next stop for it was across the border, in the Alliance, so Josefina would be out of immediate reach of the enemy. The new vessel upon which Sindra had come was escorted by ships of war. It was the private yacht Emberglow used primarily for entertaining and transporting Vernet's business associates hither and yon. It was a spacious thing, about the size of a light freighter, but air-streamed and jump-worthy. Yachts were often like that, designed so their wealthy owners and hangers-on could step onto them upon one world and step off upon another. Everyone else had to make shuttle transfers, one from the star system's jump point, and then another to ride down in flames and plasma through an atmosphere. It was a sign of status if you never had to leave your ship at all to get where you were going. That seemed like a good way to miss out on actually seeing the galaxy, but maybe that was the point. 
In contrast to something like Dorcas of the Heather, where the main attractions were rubbing elbows with the most exclusive sorts of people, participating in delightful activities, and eating the best food, prepared by the best cooks, <laughs> a yacht announced to one and all that you were so wealthy, so powerful and elite, that those other things were of no consequence. Privacy was your passion. People meant problems. So, Emberglow was fast and roomy, allowing us all a bit of privacy and luxury while in the midst of such a mad flight. Of course, my first action was to inquire about the defense properties of the ship. It was controlled by a dedicated AI, but I was assured that I could intervene at any time if I so desired. I even spoke to the machine for a bit while familiarizing myself with the hardware, and it seemed amenable to the idea, though it was not at all required to comply by law. The weapon reinstalled was nothing to make a disguised light coaster quake in fear, especially one that had been given the slip and now had something to prove, but it was better than I was expecting, and certainly the gunships and fighters surrounding us were quite up to that task. Despite my prodigious worries, it was a quiet run, allowing the others to catch their collective breath. Despite its comparatively diminutive size, Emberglow could accommodate two entirely separate groups of people, plus a few miscellaneous guests. This on top of a mixed crew of officers and hands, numbering eight. The Codget family had a suite of their own, therefore, as did Syndra. I doubled up with Shieldman Avil in a compartment my niece called Small that would have, nonetheless, housed a round dozen crew members in bunk beds upon a commercial freighter. We had been pretty formal with each other, but he insisted now that I call him Glautuk, or just Glau, which seemed to imply that the ice was starting to thaw. He was a guy who had lived his entire life in service, having been born into a class or caste which dictated the course of his life. He was always going to be a protector of the Kajit line, a path carved out for him before birth. I'd seen bred servitude fail rather spectacularly in the past, but that seemed like an unwise topic to bring up. I invited Glau to share late meal with me in Emberglow's wide common room upon our first night aboard. It was just a light sup of toast, faux caviar, various grain cheeses, and hot tea and coffee. I asked the human steward for a shot of grano on the side, it helped me sleep, which the shieldman declined when asked, and we just talked, really talked, for the first time. My shame will live with me all my days, as will your valor yours, he confessed right off. It was said without any emotion at all, and he kept frank, dark eyes on the task of spreading red, berry-like caviar upon a flat triangle of crispy toast. It wanted to fall off, so that really took some focus. Shame? The very point of my existence, Famo, is to protect this family, and especially its patriarch. There will be a reckoning at some point, but justice is a luxury right now. My job isn't yet over. You couldn't possibly have anticipated a betrayal from within the household, I argued, shocked at his conclusion, while puzzled by his passionless expression of it. 
It is true that I was not allowed to vet Chef Ziplintonva or his staff to the same extent as I did all others. This was at the insistence of the Kamo himself. The truth of his heart is now known only to Allah. Still, I should have seen it coming. If there was going to be an attack of any kind, it was logical that it would come from a quarter over which my scrutiny was hobbled. So how is it your fault? I demanded, though I already knew the answer. I'd had plenty of gigs where you were hamstrung from the start by policies or instructions from management, but then were, yourself, held accountable for the problems caused by those very constraints. It's what sucked about working for other people. Sometimes you got a good crew and good bosses, but more times than not you got varying shades of the opposite. Glautuk never had a chance, having been born within a social order designed by time, law, and custom to function like all the worst jobs I'd ever held. Each noble patriarch ran his little piece of the empire more or less the way he saw fit. Some leaders were progressive and modern, like Elmond. Some weren't. Sindra's father, Hark Vernays, had been of a different generation and mindset entirely. I'd known the man for just a couple of days, but in hindsight, I'd say he knew his time was up, not just on Barlow, but regarding his manner of doing things. The old ways weren't good enough anymore, yet he hadn't known how to move forward and still maintain the influence of the Vernet's family. His nephew, however, had a different approach, structured more along corporate lines. Yes, the Vernet's name waned in certain circles because of this choice, but it grew by leaps and bounds in others. It was a new era, and there were now new priorities. The elder Vernet's patriarch had been a smart man, Brilliant, even. But he hadn't seen the way forward, and it cost him his life. It was not my fault, Famo, Glau responded easily, though sounding a bit surprised, possibly at my failure to understand, or possibly that he even had to explain himself. It was my responsibility. Those are not the same things, or at least here they are not. Are they so over in the Alliance? Honestly? Yeah, a lot of the time they are. It depends on who you're dealing with. I shrugged and then tried the caviar myself. It was saltier than salt and I almost gagged. The shieldman saw my reaction and laughed aloud. <laughs> that was a lot of caviar for a beginner. He chortled, then proceeded to show me with his next slice how it was done, spreading only a thin layer of the red stuff over the crispy triangle. When you are new to this, a little goes a long way. I think that is how you'd put it. Ah, was my only reply, and I emulated his example. I can't say I loved it, but I could finally see why someone might. That made me smile, but it didn't last, because he returned to the subject at hand. It was upon me to root out such villainy, no matter the constraints or to resign my post as security chief if I thought myself unable to perform the duties of it. I did neither, so you must see the problem. As the responsible party, then, what'll be the fallout for you? He shook his head in ignorance. Possibly nothing, possibly everything. 
it will depend upon the judgment of the next patriarch. The Comatosa, may Allah bless and keep her, could also express a lack of faith in me, and steps would be taken. She has, however, displayed nothing but constancy and support. A superlative woman is the Comatosa, would you not agree? Sure. I've barely spoken to her, but she seems okay. A great mom, at least. She's gone through a lot to keep her kids safe. Can't fault her there. The man watched while I spoke, as if assessing the answer and judging my character based upon it. The reply seemed to confuse or even vex him slightly. You alliancers are difficult to follow, if you don't mind my so saying. Not at all. In what way do you mean? He sipped his tea while he considered the answer. Your manner of speech is informal in nearly all things. Over here that can seem highly insulting, even if it is not meant to be. But that is not all. When people from your nation actually are being insulting, their manner of speech does not appear to change. As a result, we Imperials often take offense when we shouldn't and fail to do so when we should. Oh? Sorry. I think it's mostly about volume and emphasis, but, I mean, is there some way I can mitigate that between the two of us? He thought some more, sipping his tea. The increased use of formal titles when speaking to or about people of certain ranks might be an improvement, he replied after a bit. But then he set down his cup and added quickly, Understand, good sir, that even as familian Kano of a different household, you are entitled to far more respect than I fear I've been offering in this conversation. Your manner, as I say, is informal. If I have misread the situation, I present to you my most humble apologies. There was a degree of earnestness in his voice, and he seemed ready to jump up from the table and bow or something equally appalling. No, you haven't! I snapped harder than I should have, and with annoyance, because my patience for all this social order crap was nearly at its end, at least for one day. I'd been enjoying an open expression of opinion and camaraderie with this guy, and was now alarmed that it might evaporate for no reason I could understand. Look, for the record, I expect you to speak to me like a man, not like a servant. If you have something to say, you say it. If I've pissed you off, you tell me, and I'll explain myself to you as I would to anyone else. We can hash it out from there. No dancing around, no sirs, your honors, or your graces. Our lives are on the line, and there are people counting on us both. Clarity and free expression matter far more than propriety right now, don't you agree? <laughs> Indeed I do, my friend, he boomed laughing, dark eyes shining, wide lips spreading wider beneath that black and silver beard. He offered his massive hand over the table, and I took it gratefully. So we laughed and swore and told each other what we really thought was going on, nothing of which was new for either party. We found ourselves agreeing on most points, and letting those where we differed slide by easily. In a short time I considered the man a new friend, and hoped he felt the same about me. He wouldn't call me by my first name, primarily because it could be interpreted by others as being impertinent to the point of illegality, but otherwise we were on fairly even terms. 
Glautic was a quick-witted guy, seemingly content with his lot. He was fiercely loyal to the Kajits and had decided that his only purpose now was to keep the remaining ones alive. He agreed that conflict was likely and that the family he served was now outnumbered by its enemies. I asked him what he thought the Kamo had been up to over in the Alliance, and he parted with the supposition that the old man was looking for allies, or even some sort of intervention in his political affairs. It was obvious now that he'd been feeling the daggers around him. Glautic openly wondered why he had chosen to seek help from outside the Empire, ultimately declaring it a mystery. I was careful to avoid the word defection in our otherwise frank conversation. Either way, and whatever the Count had been looking to achieve, Glau thought it a chance now lost. He assumed the widow of his employer, along with her children, were on their own, save for their new friends, the Immaculate Vernays, may Allah bless and keep them, and those servants now present on Emberglow, meaning just he and the young Hadia. When the truth came out, the situation might change. Military and financial leaders among the extended Kajit line could find reason to rally behind them, but this part of the family needed to be alive for that to matter. He thought Lady Trasal was after Kajit assets and titles in some fashion, but he appeared to hold no overt animosity toward the woman because if it hadn't been her, it would have been someone else. Lacking subtlety in his actions and goals, the Count had shown weakness, and the wolves were always watching, always hungry. He had questions for me, too. What was my real title and relationship with the Vernay's clan? How was it that an Ain citizen, at one point he called me an anal without any apparent awareness, I laughed hard, but I did correct him, how could such a man be trusted as a member of the family? Holding a noble title, even one as lowly as Familiancano, meant I was an imperial citizen too, since, by definition, to be one you had to be the other. I suppose, I answered with a shrug. I signed some papers a few years back about titles and such. Elman Vernays assured me it was all just a formality, and I trust his word. He's been good to me and good to my niece. He's older than she is, and he has fond memories of her as a child. She was precocious, I guess, and entertainingly exasperating. That hasn't changed much. And we both chuckled. I did know of you, he added after this, but quietly, as if reluctant to bring something up. What do you mean? Everyone has heard about the twice-cursed world of Barlow an attempt to gain imperial influence within the Alliance using Alliance methods. Ah, yeah, those two things didn't mix well. You are the fabled Estaron. I confess uh, that upon meeting you and learning of your identity, I was, well... <laughs> horribly disappointed? I asked, laughing, and he joined in, nodding, dark cheeks turning ruddy. That's okay! I am too most days! <laughs> and we laughed some more. I was embarrassed by that star and crap, despite myself, and uncomfortable because of it. 
When I'm uncomfortable, I eat. I don't know what I was thinking, but I swallowed some toast while we were both in our guffaws and started immediately choking. Laughing and hacking, I was helpless to stop either. Glau felt obliged after a bit to get up and smack me on the back, all while nearly doubled over himself. It was cathartic and deeply appreciated, even if I did feel like I was dying for a while there. Eventually, I was able to cough up the bread into a napkin, and exhaustion eased the comedy. We grinned at each other for a bit after that, both of us surprised and well-entertained. And then spontaneously started up again. It went on until my belly hurt, and he was holding his. I'm not sure I ever laughed that hard in my life, and all over nothing that was funny. By the time he excused himself, citing early duties and a need for rest, Glautuk held my two forearms warmly in his, declaring me to be his friend. There was great good humor in his tone, but this too had a bit of formality to it, implying it was how personal alliances were made among certain kinds of men in the empire. So I echoed those words and returned that smile and made a new ally. I wasn't tired and actually wanted to chat with the AI about some aspects of gunnery law here in the Empire, so he returned to our shared cabin alone. Before he left the common room, though, I requested that Sindra and I have a meeting with the Comatosa before we arrived at our destination, and he said he'd ask in the morning. Upon a ship in space, or really everywhere in space, that meant first shift. We still had days of subjective time, so I assured him there was no rush. He thanked me for that, and for the pleasure of my company, then wished me a pleasant rest of my evening, before sauntering off, still chuckling quietly. I sat there for a while, smile glued to my face. I was very happy this had gone well. What was coming next might require a good man close at hand. I would certainly need his trust, and possibly later on, after it was all played out, his forgiveness. Everyone's forgiveness. Rather than call up the semi-sapient gunnery program, I instead helped myself to another shot and spent time thinking. A lot of time, as it turned out. Some nights are long, even when they're fun. And out in space, the nights never end. You have been listening to All He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. 
The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Malov and is licensed through TribeOfNoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio, novels, and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care.